Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. Hello there, this is Salisa and Jeff, and before we kick off this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast, we have a small request. If you've listened to the show before and gotten value out of it, or if you're someone listening for the first time and you find this episode valuable, please leave a rating and brief review for the Leading Learning Podcast on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, by going to leadinglearning.com apple. Reviews play an important role in the long-term success and sustainability of any podcast. Your reviews help us attract new listeners, and they help show sponsors that the show is reaching listeners and having an impact. We understand all too well how busy you are, so please know that we really appreciate each and every review we receive. We'd be truly grateful if you would take just a moment to contribute a review today. Now, on with the show. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 189 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Bill Draves, president of the Learning Resources Network, or LEARN, and author of Nine Shift, Work, Life, and Education in the 21st Century. But before we get to the interview, we want to take a moment to highlight a recent review of the show and express our appreciation. This review comes from Jack Corson, who says, Leading learning is outstanding, with an exclamation point. And he writes, If you work at the intersection of education and business, especially in the association world, you need to check out this podcast. I'm not always as good as I should be about my own professional development, and I'm a bit of an introvert, so I don't have a massive professional network, but just knowing two names, Salisa Steele and Jeff Cobb, and listening to the Leading Learning Podcast helps me stay attuned to the industry and aware of the people in it. The podcast goes deep into the weeds of adult learning tactics, and it also pulls back out to look at the bigger strategic picture and reflect. It purposefully pulls in diverse perspectives from across our industry and makes important connections from the outside, too. I get actionable insights from listening, and equally as important, it inspires me to think of new ideas and new opportunities. It's easily a must-listen podcast. So thanks so much for leaving that review, Jack, and for giving us a five-star rating. Yes, thank you very much. We are truly grateful for that review and rating, and we should also note that Jack has been on the show before. He is a frontline learning business professional, and I had the chance to speak with him in episode 163 about the work his organization, the American Speech Language Hearing Association, is doing with microlearning. So we'll be sure to link to that episode in the show notes. But for now, let's get back to the focus of this episode. 
Jeff, tell us a little bit about what you and Bill Draves cover. Well, I had the pleasure of meeting Bill and actually interviewing him many years ago. And he's someone I've always respected as a thought leader in lifelong learning and as a pioneer in the area of lifelong learning as a business. And we spend a good bit of time discussing his book, Nine Shift, because as becomes clear in the episode, 2020 is a pivotal year for the book, or, or at least for the main argument of the book. So we look at some of the predictions that Bill and his co-author, Julie Coates, made and how they've played out. And then we also, of course, talk about the role of learning businesses in the 21st century and how they're going to need to adapt and evolve. And I'll also mention just one fun fact about Bill that I didn't manage to bring up in the interview. He's a cousin to Peter Tork, who was, until he passed away earlier this year, the, the bass player and keyboardist for The Monkees. And uh, older listeners may remember the, the TV show if you saw it in its original form or in its rerun versions. Um, and probably most listeners have heard some of their classics, like uh, Take the Last Train to Clarksville and I'm a Believer. In any case, Bill told me that Peter was a heck of a nice guy, and it must run in the family because I think Bill is a heck of a nice guy, and I know listeners are going to enjoy this conversation with him. Hey, hey, we're not the monkeys, but we can go ahead and roll the interview with Bill Drake. Hello, and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Jeff Cobb, and today I am very happy to be joined by Bill Draves. Bill is president of the Learning Resources Network, or LEARN, which, as the world's largest association in continuing education and lifelong learning, serves more than 9,000 professionals every year. He's the author of multiple books, one of which we will definitely discuss as part of this episode, and he is a much sought-after speaker. Indeed, one of the many people who has heard him said that he would, quote, trample my grandma to hear Draves speak. Fortunately, no one will need to trample their grandmother to hear Bill speak on the Leading Learning Podcast, but you might want to find a quiet place and maybe a good set of headphones for what I know is going to be a very interesting conversation. Bill, welcome to Leading Learning. Good to talk with you again, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so glad you're here. We got to talk a long time back on the Mission to Learn podcast uh, back when I was uh, uh, just a mere babe in the woods uh, around podcasting. So ho hopefully I'm a little more skilled now in, uh, in uh, conducting a good interview. And I gave a little bit of background on you as we were starting there. But uh, I mean, you've really had a, a, a long and uh, a rich history in this whole world of lifelong learning that we both work in. And so to start things off, what else would you like to highlight for listeners about you and, and your work as a background for our conversation? Well, one, I came out of the 1960s. That's when I went to college. And the whole idea um, that anyone can learn and anyone can teach was actually heresy back then. Mm. The New York Times wrote an editorial against uh, us. And so I came um, out of, into education from the point of view of uh, grassroots community education in which our philosophy um, at that time, moved from heresy to something that everybody accepts uh, today. And so um, it's been a, a terrific ride over the last uh, 40 to 50 years. And if I re remember, I mean, before you started to learn, or learn grew out of uh, essentially a free university of some sort. Uh, am, am I correct in, in, in remembering that? 
Yes, uh, free universities were those uh, community and campus organizations that just sprouted up all over North America um, to teach uh, guitar and um, a few political things and um, yoga and uh, to allow anybody to teach and anybody to learn. That's such a a great background, and uh, it's nice we've seen I guess something of a return to, to something like that with what the uh, the internet and the, and the web have uh, now enabled us to do and certainly like to get into that a little bit in our conversation. But, but you know, one of the ways that I came to know about you originally uh, many years ago was through a book that you co-authored um, with Julie Coates. And, and that book was Nine Shift, Work, Life, and Education in the 21st Century. And um, this is an important year for the book. Uh, it's one of the reasons we really wanted to have you on because the changes that you highlighted in it were ones that you said were going to play out between the year 2000 and 2020. So those, you know, first 20 years of the, of the 21st century. So I mean, first for listeners who may not be aware of the book or, you know, who like me have aging and, and foggy memories, um, could you ex- explain that the premise behind that title, uh, nine shift, what, what is a nine shift? Great question. A nine shift is that nine hours of our day are spent differently in the new economy, the new age, than it was spent just 20 years ago in the old age. We're, mm. we're moving out of the industrial age, the age of the factory, uh, and into knowledge society. And that uh, transformation is essentially completed in another seven months by 2020. This, this change where 75% of life changes happens just within 20 years. Um, and if we go back 100 years ago, we can see that that same change happened all over North America as we move from the agrarian age where 50% of people lived on family farms into the industrial age. And so Nine Shift was written to predict the changes that would happen in the first 20 years of the 21st century uh, by essentially um, we looked back 100 years ago and we said the same thing will happen all over again. And we came up with nine different major changes. But the main idea behind Nine Shift is um, you got to sleep, you got to eat. Um, that takes up 12 hours. But nine of those other awaking 12 hours, 75% is different in this century than it was just 20 years ago in the last century. And I, and I think the analogies that, uh, that you draw, the comparisons that you draw are, um, are really compelling. And I definitely want to get into some of those. The, I mean, the major driver for the change that um, you identify from agrarian to industrial is the automobile. Um, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not electricity or, you know, uh, some of the other big things that came along. The automobile just really changed things. Um, and then, you know, for this shift, it's, it's really the Internet um, that, yeah. that's shifting things. I mean, can you talk a, a, a little bit more about, you know, how the auto changed things so much and, and you know, why the Internet is the big driver now? Sure. Well, it was the automobile that defined the last century. It was, one, transportation, 
Two, it was where people lived. That is, you moved to the suburbs. Um, and then three, it was the factory. Um, the mass production of the automobile then spread to every other tangible uh, good. Um, and we measured success in um, the last century with um, tangible goods. Um, and it changed all of life, even even sports and um, our leisure time. And so the Internet and then technically um, the World Wide Web, which was mm. invented between 1989 and 1992 by Tim Berners-Lee, um, has done the same. It is the technology that changes life in this century. Um, and so when you have a technology that is so huge that it changes how people uh, work, then you see the same dominoes falling. Uh, jobs get changed. Um, life and the family reorients itself around um, work. And then even leisure reorients itself around um, the technology for the, for the new age. And as you uh, have noted, um, you do identify not, not just the concept of uh, nine shift, but also nine key shifts um, that, uh, that are happening that you uh, elaborate on in the book. And, you know, we're not going to have time to, to discuss each of those uh, in detail during this episode. But, um, but I do want to list them out because um, I think many listeners will just get them intuitively um, by hearing them. Um, and then I'm hoping maybe we can you know, focus in on a few of them. So the, the shifts are, um, uh, one, people work from home. Two, intranets replace offices. Three, networks replace the pyramid. Four, trains replace cars. Five, communities become dense, six, new societal infrastructures evolve, seven, this one's kind of provocative, cheating becomes collaboration, uh, eight, half of all learning is online, and nine, education becomes web-based. And these are the nine shifts that uh, you know, are due to occur between 2000 and 2020. And again, we'll, we'll list those out in the show notes and, of course, encourage people to get the book uh, in the first place if they haven't to read all about these. But I know in the, in the past, um, and I believe this was in a TED talk that you gave, I've heard you refer to, to, to three of those as kind of the big three. And those were people work from home, trains replace cars, and communities become dense. Now, are those still your, your big three at this point? Yes. Um, the people work from home. And we now define home as wherever you want to be and where you can um, work best um, is clearly the silent revolution that is driving the others. Um, and so um, workplaces become more dispersed. Um, that's why we have e-learning and online learning. Um, working from home, uh, people are 25% more productive than people who work in a centralized office. Um, so that is clearly um, what is driving the workplace. Now, trains replacing cars may still be maybe the most controversial one out there. We, we maintain all nine shifts have occurred. Right. <laughs> We're now talking about history in the past um, now, but um, 
trains clearly. Uh, just in the last two months, you can see uh, over in Europe uh, that they want to ban short-haul uh, flights because trains are so good for uh, the environment. You can work on a train. You can't work while you're driving. That's the, the principal reason why uh, trains are replacing cars. Uh, but then combine that with the environment and the safety factors, the speed factor, and the, uh, the fact that people are moving um, by the millions into dense communities, um, first in, in major cities, we're seeing that now, but we will soon see that into um, medium-sized uh, towns uh, with a train station. Um, so... Um, I was at Chatham um, outside of Toronto between Windsor and Toronto, and they're on the line uh, mm. for the train between Toronto and Windsor. So uh, they are in line um, to also um, see that kind of growth. Well, and the, you know, the trains replace cars one is one that I have to say is kind of dear to my own heart. Um, and I feel like it's primarily the, the United States that's the, the culprit in not making the kind of uh, progress in, in that that it should. I know I've been fortunate to be able to travel quite a bit in Europe. And I know when we go to Europe with the family, we were in, you know, in England last year, and we planned you know, most of it around train because you can, you can take trains just about everywhere. Um, and and same, you know, same on the continent and same in you know, so many other countries. And then I know here in the, the Triangle area, um, uh, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill of North Carolina, where I live, you know, they've been talking about a, a light rail line for a, more than a decade now, which would just be miraculous for this area because the congestion's getting so bad, it would connect things together. And there just doesn't seem to be the political will um, to, to make it happen. But you know, it just, it has to be an inevitability. Um, you know, it's not, it's not gonna happen by 2020, uh, unfortunately, but, but hopefully it's gonna happen in my lifetime. Yes, and Canada and the United States are the um, last countries in the advanced world to have high-speed trains. Uh, but, um, and that's another thing that happens um, when you uh, move into a new age, uh, you have to start all over. And so some nations, some cities, some states uh, go into decline um, mm. and others rise. Um uh, but clearly, um, yeah, 100 years ago, there were still people who fought automobiles and, and cars. Um, in 1926, there was a song uh, about how great um, the horse and buggy was. And Henry Ford um, fought to uh, ban that song because he was still threatened by <laughs> the horse and buggy in 1926. And of course, um, you know, my wife grew up uh, walking behind um, her grandfather's mule in the early 1950s. So, um, uh, yeah, things do take a while and, and uh, change doesn't happen everywhere at the same time. Uh, but we clearly have the blueprint now. We know yeah. it's going to happen. Yeah. Light rail will come to the triangle uh, area um, and everywhere else. Well, and it's funny, just, just as we were talking, to, to flip back to the, that, that first of the big three around people working from home, um, you know, I've been thinking about a lot of trends and rereading your book and you know, things like Uber and self-driving cars coming along and how that you know, is possibly impacting the trains replace 
cars um, component of things, but then the people work from home. I mean, we've had such a freelance revolution. Um, so, I mean, partly by choice, sometimes not so much by choice um, over the, the course of the last several years that, you know, a, a huge percentage of the population now has no office to go to. I mean, they, they, they basically, you know, they're going to be working from home or they're going to be working at Starbucks. They're going to be working independently um, as freelancers. And there are good sides and bad sides to that, but it doesn't seem to be something that's going to go away uh, anytime soon. Um, so it just seems to be in line with that, uh, that first big shift, uh, the, the people work from home that you identified. Yeah, the gig economy is part of that, um, but the heart and guts of the new economy is the knowledge worker. Mm. And the knowledge worker has a college degree or the equivalent um, and then deals with intangibles, um, almost always dealing, uh, working uh, online. Um, and this is, this is the work sector that's most important. In the last century, it was factory workers because factory workers brought in four jobs uh, per, purse, per, per factory worker. In this century, we don't have factory workers and right. we won't. Um, and so the knowledge worker um, creates four additional jobs. I was sitting on an airplane next to a guy. I said, what do you do? He says, I move green on, on freight trains. And I said, great. When have you been a, last on a freight train? He said, oh, years ago. <laughs> and uh, he's never seen a green elevator. But he logs on and tells uh, everybody else what green goes in what car on what train. And everybody else's job is dependent on, on this guy. That's a knowledge worker. Yeah, And there's uh, millions of them in every occupation. And that's, um, that's the heart and guts of the, the work sector that needs retraining and um, ongoing um, e-learning and training and education. If your goal is to deliver effective e-learning to support the knowledge workers in your audience, be sure to check out our sponsor for this quarter. WBT Systems develops the industry-leading top-class LMS, which delivers transformative professional development experiences for education and certification programs. With a single point of support from in-house integration experts, Top Class LMS easily integrates with a wide variety of systems to provide efficient administration and a unified learning experience. WBT supports organizations in using learning technology to help drive growth in membership, increase revenues, and enhance the learning experience. WBT believes in truly understanding your challenges and partnering with you to ensure the success of your education programs. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash WBT. And now back to the interview as Jeff and Bill turn to the issue of access to learning for everyone who is impacted by the nine shift. This might be a good time then to, to turn to kind of how, how people get the access to that that they need, you know, how we, how we get all of these knowledge workers and make sure everybody does uh, stay up to speed, um, has the opportunities that um, we would want for them to, to have uh, in this new century. And, and, and specifically, you know, I'm thinking about touching on uh, it's your, your sixth shift, which is new societal infrastructures evolve. And, and I'm actually going to quote uh, something you say in the book about this. You say, this is one shift that is not inevitable, not solely dependent on the unassailable economic forces resulting from the power of the internet. This is a shift dependent on volition, 
on communities and societies making a conscious choice. This is not automatic. You know, and, and you're talking about, you know, the, the, the shift that we're going to need to make for there to be the kind of uh, economic equity that needs to be out there for people, people to get access to these new knowledge jobs, to get access to the learning um, that they, they need for these new uh, knowledge jobs. Um, what's, what's your, and, and, you know, in the midst of the, I guess, the turmoil that we seem to be in in the United States uh, right now, uh, socially and politically, uh, what's your perspective on, on that shift at, at this point? Yes, um, um, I totally uh, agree with you or <laughs> restating what we said that, um, yeah, 100 years ago, Russia, Japan, Europe, and the U.S. all became industrialized societies, but they did it in different ways, and we can clearly see how each of those nations had a different uh, infrastructure and a, a mode of life, and so today we're doing that um, as well. The thing that um, uh, sticks out in my mind continually on a daily basis um, is that in this century, we need 50% of our people to have a, a four-year college uh, education and mm. degree. And the U.S. is only at 28% right now. And when you look at unemployment, unemployment for college graduates is 2%. It's rock bottom. There's nobody else out there with a college degree. And every study uh, and company uh, will tell you that the greatest need, they, they need, you know, unskilled labor and factory, but the greatest need is for people with um, a college education. Mm. So when we talk about infrastructure, it starts with actually uh, education and businesses uh, current, uh, really tough. It's tough out there now hiring, um, more college graduates because you're, uh, competing, uh, there for that 2%. Um, and so, uh, that would be my starting point, mm -hmm. um, for infrastructure for our country. And then uh, this, I guess, probably overlaps with that, but then I think goes beyond that. Um, you know, you talked about the concept of individual learning accounts uh, in that particular chapter of the book. Is that, you know, is that a concept you're still high on? And, you know, do you see any more receptivity to it at, at this point? And, and I'm thinking mainly in the United States, it has happened in, in other countries. Yeah. Um, the idea of an individual learning account is, as we've mentioned, um, workers are mobile. And, and have to be mobile, and companies have to uh, be mobile. The idea of lifetime employment doesn't serve anybody, uh, either the company or the employee, anymore. Um, and so that's why, uh, you know, to just to put it bluntly, uh, why we're going to have universal health care, just like every other advanced nation in the in the world, because workers can't move and. Mm -hmm. and uh, companies have to keep employees because they don't want to move <laughs> simply because of health benefits. So learning benefits, um, an individual learning account would be the same thing. That is um, um, employees, employers, and then when um, in the case of low-income people uh, and undereducated, the government would pitch in. Uh, and fund a person's individual learning account 
where they could spend it on um, a wide variety, uh, but certainly not frivolous um, activities to enhance um, their learning. And what we know now is um, people are going to have, well, you know, they say five to seven careers and umpteen jobs. A job mm-hmm. is like a gig now. And so your skill set has to change as the circumstances uh, change um, out there in society and with your own uh, career uh, and your uh, direction of your company uh, currently. So we've got to be very flexible in terms of ongoing uh, learning. Um, 20 years ago, I don't think we talked about cross-training. Uh, now it's like absolutely uh, essential and, and acquiring new skill sets, um, which is why certificates are so popular right now. Right. Um, with our, we work with nonprofit um, colleges, universities, schools, but um, that's why, because there's a skill set there that's um, uh, comprehensive, intensive, but you can go in, in different directions um, with those skill sets. If you need to deliver education to support certificate programs and other types of credentials, we suggest you visit our sponsor for this quarter. Community Brands provides a suite of cloud-based software for organizations to engage and grow relationships with the individuals they serve, including association management software, learning management software, job board software, and event management software. Community Brands' award-winning crowd wisdom learning platform is among the world's best LMSs for corporate extended enterprise and is a leading LMS for association-driven professional education programs. Award-winning Freestone, Community Brands' live event learning platform, is a leading platform for live learning event capture, webinars, webcasts, and on-demand streaming. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash communitybrands. And now back to Jeff and Bill as they discuss how learning businesses must evolve and adapt to address the needs of the 21st century. And and that might be a a great place to, to pivot to... You know, I think a topic that certainly d- definitely overlaps with um, with nine shift and, and the whole shift that uh, we have been experiencing, and that's you know into this whole world of lifelong learning and and the business of lifelong learning. You know, the vast majority of the listeners here on leading learning that that's what they do. They are professionals in in the business of lifelong learning, continuing education, professional development. That's obviously you know been the the focus of your career, you know, you know an awful lot uh, about um, uh, different types of lifelong learning, about being in uh, the business of lifelong learning. You know, how have you seen, you know, and maybe learn members um, or just you know organizations in general in the business of lifelong learning? How have you seen them evolve and adapt as this century has progressed from you know 2000 to 2020, and, and probably more importantly how do they need to uh, evolve and adapt at, at this point to make sure that they're playing the role that's going to make them most valuable? Well, you've hit on the, the central issue that I'm debating with myself on a regular basis. Can uh, organizations evolve and adapt, mm-hmm. or is there going to be some cataclysmic uh, change 
um, that's going to devastate um, modes of learning and maybe even organizations. So mm-hmm. I, I started 2000 right up until 2015 thinking that education would go through the transformation between 2000 and 2020, just like society. And then, um, and then around 2015, um, looking back, uh, when John Dewey wrote his classic work in 1916, and, and we went on a, a tear um, changing education, which really went on in the 20s. That's when it really happened. Interesting. Um, and by 1930, then we had an education system for this uh, last century. So right now, um, yes, uh, economically, uh, society is positioned in 2020 for the knowledge society, but not education. Hmm. Um, and so we still have 10 years to go where all of us engaged in lifelong learning And to be clear, um, learning in society is one system. Um, You could put a five-year-old in a classroom and that child would know where the teacher is going to stand and where (laughs) he or she is supposed to sit. And you you don't even have to ask now when you walk in as a 35-year-old you know where the teacher's going to stand and where you're supposed to sit. So we are really one basic system. Um, And so um, whether we're dealing with lifelong learning and continuing education, like most of us are um, or not, um, it uh, is being uh, dramatically changed. I call it transformed. Um, and, And we won't see that complete transformation till 2030. Well, that... I love that you brought up that point about, uh, you know, John Dewey, you know, being right, writing in that, you know, 1915, 1916 uh, period. Because, I mean, he, yeah, his, his thinking really was a, a huge part of what drove that uh, transformation. And, um, and we need the equivalent of, of that thinking for this age, which, of course, you know, you're providing. I, I like to hope I'm providing uh, some of it. There are a lot of people out there doing it. Maybe this time it's more likely to come from a network um, than from an individual. Uh, but, uh, um, but, yeah, it is. It is upon us all now to 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 make that transformation happen. Or I worry about the the same question that that you brought up. You know, are how many of the traditional uh, institutions, organizations, providers of that system that you just so aptly described are not going to make it um, because they haven't really figured out what's necessary as we as we move into uh, into the new economy. So interesting times ahead to see how it all pans out. Um, and my. My understanding is that, uh, well, this, you know, we're coming up on 2020. Um, so, you know, reaching the end of that window on, on nine shift, uh, I, my understanding is you have plans to commemorate that in, in some way. Is that, uh, is that the case? Yes. We're going to do a grand finale, um, in November, um, celebrating, um, the, uh, transition from one, uh, age into, uh, another and uh, nine shift will uh, the story is is told and all of those nine shifts have happened so there's still future and um, you know I think we still have 10 years to go on how education changes mm-hmm. but um, basically nine shift is going to have a big send-off 
and uh, we hope to have it online, um, streamed uh, live uh, from San Diego, and um, we'll um, complete the, the story. Well, that would certainly be uh, appropriate for an organization that um, where you exist virtually, you, you use a virtual office, uh, basically, um, and obviously are also very involved in, in online education. So having virtual access to the grand finale is uh, yeah, completely, completely appropriate. Um, before, before we wrap up, um, this has been a you know, fantastic conversation. So glad that uh, we were able to get you on. I'm, I'm particularly interested to, to ask you this question. It's something we ask of all people who come on the show, but, uh, you know, because you are somebody who's so deeply involved in, uh, lifelong learning, um, you know, interested to hear your response. And, and the question is, what's one of the most powerful learning experiences that you personally have been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? Yeah, it would have to be sitting at the feet of the masters, um, mm. and that would be uh, people in a variety of different fields. I mean, I did get the chance to sit at the feet of Malcolm Knowles, the greatest uh, adult educator of the last century, but right. um, um, also um, people who grew up in the 1920s. Um, and, and they're amazing tales and things that you can't learn online, um, from people. And, um, currently there's a guy who's into trains, uh, and he knows, uh, everybody, um, and everything about, uh, trains in the whole United States. And, um, again, just, uh, sitting and, um, listening and being able to ask questions, Mm. I think questions, I'm now making my students in my online classes ask questions because I think it is so critical to learning um, and really work. Um, so I would have to say um, sitting at the feet of um, somebody who uh, has had an extraordinary experience and or uh, expertise yeah, I, I love that answer, and uh, we should we should all be looking for those people and uh, making them a part of our lives. And that, and I love that point about questions too. I'll say one of the things that uh, that I've come to deeply appreciate about you know hosting a podcast and and interviewing people is if you're going to do it well, you you have to put a lot of thought into what are what are good questions to ask. And you know, I've got miles to go to get uh, great at it, but it's that is a learning experience, um, and it you know means that uh, that I learn a lot from uh, from these podcast uh, interviews. So, speaking of which, it's thanks so much. Well, thank you, thank you, and and we're uh, truly grateful to to have had you on. Um, I'm realizing now we, we should have had you on much earlier, and we'll have to have you on uh, again um, at some point uh, before too long. But thanks so much for taking the time today for the, for this episode. If listeners want to learn more about you um, and your work or even connect with you, where should they go? Our website is uh, learn.org, L-E-R-N, no A in learn, uh, .org. Um, me personally, williamdraves.com. Well, great. And I do encourage uh, listeners to check out the Learn website, check out Bill's website. Uh, definitely uh, go get Nine Shift and read it or reread it. If you have not already, we'll put all of these links into the show notes, uh, as we always do for you to, to check out there. But in the meantime, Bill, thanks so much for being a guest on Leading Learning. My pleasure. Thanks, Jeff.
That wraps up our interview with Bill Draves. For show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 189. And when you check out the show notes, you'll also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. If you're getting value out of what you hear, we'd be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. We'd also be grateful if you would take just a minute and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. To do that, you can go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. That will put you in the right place. Jeff and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but even more importantly, those reviews and ratings play a really big role in helping the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And another thing that plays a big role is our sponsors. So we would be grateful if you would check them out. Find out more about WBT Systems at leadinglearning.com slash WBT and find out what Community Brands has to offer at leadinglearning.com slash communitybrands. Finally, please tell others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leading lifelong learning. You can like us and share us with others on Facebook. However you do it, please spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.